Last year in June, the Virginia Highland Church lost one of the saints of our congregation and of the wider church when David Fleming passed away. And we hosted the memorial service for David here in the sanctuary. And there was a second service in Pennsylvania where he and Karen were a part of for many years before they moved here to be closer to their daughter, Jennifer. Jennifer spoke at the memorial service here and in uh, Pennsylvania and just did a beautiful job bringing David to life. He's this kind of larger than life guy. He was a big guy physically. He was a big guy in terms of his heart and his personality. Uh, he cared deeply about other people. He was just a master of spreading joy and, and humor wherever he went. Uh, Jennifer, in her eulogy, started out by sharing some words of wisdom that David uh, lived by, so a list of things that, that she had found among his belongings and shared them, uh, including such pearls as, you should not confuse your career with your life. And nobody cares if you can't dance well, just get up and dance. And never, under any circumstances, take a sleeping pill and a laxative on the same night. <laughs> and there were other pearls of wisdom that she shared. And she, she also shared that she realized that these uh, aphorisms, these maxims, were not unique to David. They actually weren't original to him. He had lifted them from a sign at Jimmy John's where you can get not only free smells and good food, but also uh, all the wisdom uh, pasted around uh, the restaurant, which is where David got many of those things. And it's just beautiful because, uh, you know, David was all about living a happy, meaningful life. And happiness is the main driver. It's a big driver in our world. You might say it's the thing that drives our world. It's even enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Parents want their children to be healthy and happy above everything else. We're only as happy as your least happy child, as the saying goes. Happy wife, happy life, happy spouse, happy house. If mama ain't happy, Ain't no, see, we know. There are dozens of books dedicated, even in the past decade, to the art of cultivating happiness. And why not? In this time when we are increasingly stressed and anxious and burned out, why not focus on how do we cultivate happiness in the midst of everything that comes at us? Just this month, Time Magazine devoted its uh, cover article, main article, to happiness. The secrets of happiness experts, featuring one such expert, Dr. Lori Santos, no relation to George, as far as I know. Dr. Lori Santos is a happiness expert, and she's a psychologist. She teaches a course every year called The Science of Happiness. And it is the most popular course, the most well-attended course in the history of Yale University. When she offers this course, over a thousand students sign up to take it, which has created all sorts of interesting problems for Yale, including where do we put a thousand people on our campus? Where can they park? 
and also the nearby cafeteria was immediately overwhelmed because of everybody coming in for lunch right before class that they were not set up to serve that many people at once. A number of things jumped out at me in this article. One is Dr. Santos says that our brains are not wired for happiness. That's the bad news. Our brains are not wired for happiness. In her uh, opinion, in her research, our brains are actually wired for survival. Our brains are wired to solve problems. Our brains are wired to establish security, which means our brains are mostly looking out for threats or obstacles and how to overcome them to preserve our life and so forth, which is not necessarily, uh, you know, stepping stones to peace and tranquility and happiness when you're always looking out for that next obstacle and how to solve the problems that come at us. So Santos believes that therefore we cannot think our way into happiness. There goes the power of positive thinking, I guess, but in her view, as a behavioral psychologist, we can't think our way into happiness. We have to behave our way into happiness by practicing the tried and true habits of highly happy people. And she's uh, listed a number of them, so here, we, here they are real quick. The seven habits of highly happy people, if we can practice these, we'll find ourselves, according to our research, becoming more and more happy. Number one, getting at least seven hours of sleep every night. How you doing there? Number two, having a hobby, just something that you enjoy doing that you dedicate time to every week. Number three, exercise. 20 minutes of exercise at least three times a week. Number four, spending time outdoors in nature. That's another one of the habits of highly happy people. Number five, having a regular meditation or prayer practice. Number six, spending time with friends outside the office or with family, loved ones outside of the house, outside of the home. And number seven, engaging in a support group and or seeing a therapist. <laughs> now look, just by participating at Virginia Highland Church, you've already covered three of those. So now if you just go home, take a brisk walk in nature, check in with your hobby, and get a good night's sleep, you've got all seven right there. Well, Jesus' formula for happiness is really, really different. It's known commonly as the Beatitudes, but the word Beatitude doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. That's just the name we've given them. It comes from the Latin word Beat, which is where we get the word beauty. So this is the beautiful attitudes. These are the beautiful attitudes, the beautiful way. The Greek word, which is what we actually find in scripture, is makarios. And makarios means happy. It means fortunate, it means blessed, it means privileged. Makarios, incidentally, is where we get the word macaroni. Because what child is not happy with a plate of macaroni and cheese? It's also where we get the word macarena, you know, because who isn't happy doing the macarena, I guess. Anyway, this word, this formula, 
for happiness is really striking. Jesus is not saying get a good night's sleep, engage with your hobby, and keep your appointment with your therapist. He says, happy are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are those who mourn. Congratulations to the meek. Privileged are the pure in heart. Blessed are the persecuted. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. According to Jesus, happiness starts with weak, weary, wounded, weepy. Well, it might help to know that both Mahatma Gandhi and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. both said it was Jesus' daring and dangerous words in the Beatitudes that sparked their activism. Martin Luther King said the Beatitudes of Jesus were the motivating force behind the civil rights movement. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the sick, blessed are the persecuted. Well, what's so dangerous and daring about that? How would that spark a movement? Well, like today, the people in Jesus' time believed that if you were wealthy, if you had privilege, if you had power, well, obviously, God has blessed you. Sometimes we talk about our material abundance as blessings. There it is again. And certainly in Jesus' day, that was true. The more you have, the more blessed, the more favored, the more loved by God you must be, which by itself is not awful, but it means something pretty terrible when you look at the other side of it. It therefore means, by contrast, if you are not materially blessed, if you are not wealthy, if you are suffering, if you are marginalized, well, then clearly you are not blessed by God, that you have, you are in fact being punished. You or your ancestors obviously did something wrong, you messed up, and therefore you can't have nice things. That's the opposite of being blessed in the way that we sometimes talk about it. And Jesus is saying, no, that's BS. It is just the opposite. In fact, the poor, the hungry, the meek, the grieving, the sick, the persecuted, they're the favored ones. The kingdom belongs to them, not because of, they're not experiencing those things because of just desserts, but because the world itself is unjust. Now, those are some dangerous ideas. Maybe now, we can see why people in power wanted to silence Jesus. Jesus was not crucified for handing out food. Jesus was crucified for challenging the caste system of his day and the ideology that supported it. That's why I believe if we think Jesus would be about building walls and refusing refugees, if we think Jesus would advocate policies that benefit the powerful to the expense of the poor, if we believe Jesus would turn a blind eye to policies attempting to erase black history and queer experience, then it might be we don't know Jesus. Pope Francis said it even more strongly. He once said of the Beatitudes, a person who thinks only about building walls and not building bridges is not a Christian. He went on to say, this is not the gospel. We need to build a society in light of the Beatitudes, 
walking towards the kingdom with the least of these. The Beatitudes can also be dangerous in another way if we misinterpret them entirely. It's possible that if we were taught that the kingdom of heaven comes only after we die, we might be tempted to understand the Beatitudes as something that comes, the blessings that come after we die for the poor, for the persecuted, for the meek. Oh, don't worry, just hang in there. I know you're suffering now, but later on in heaven, you're gonna be at the heavenly banquet, which isn't exactly comforting or good news to those experiencing poverty or marginalization or who are mourning and conveniently serves those who might help. That's one danger. The other danger with the Beatitudes is we could end up glorifying suffering. Oh, look at this horrible situation that you're facing. What a great opportunity for spiritual growth. I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. I think what Jesus is saying is people who aren't poor in spirit or humble are less likely to be open to the spirit. If I don't feel like I need mercy myself, I will probably be less likely to share mercy with others. If I think I'm right all the time, chances are I'm not going to be a very valuable peacemaker when disagreements arise. In other words, we're better off, we are in a better position when we are empty and bottomed out because then we can be filled with holy blessings. So when you, not if, but when you are feeling weak and weary and wounded and weepy, you might not feel like you're the kind of person the world might be looking for, but you're exactly the person Jesus is looking for. Because Jesus prefers the tender-hearted to hardened hearts and hearted heads. Jesus prefers the wounded to the invincible. Jesus can do more work with the hungry than those who are smug and satisfied. Jesus would rather hang with the persecuted than with the powerful. If you are feeling weak, Jesus is standing by to lift you up and make you strong. If you are tired and worn, Jesus is ready to lend you a hand. If you are weeping, Jesus shares your tears. The Beatitudes aren't encouraging us to slap on a fake smile and pretend to be happy and that everything's great. Instead, they invite us to be part of the vulnerable body of Christ made up of people who acknowledge their vulnerability and find healing and wholeness in communion and in community. Even right here, right now, even at this table. Amen? Ashe. Namaste. Namaste.